0: We're looking this morning at John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 18. Now John writes, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And just as an aside, some commentators joke and say this is why John doesn't mention himself, because he was faster than Peter, and he didn't want to be immodest. Anyway, for your consideration. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, it is very interesting if you have been a Christian for any length of time You have that shared experience of wishing that you love the Lord Jesus more than you do That's an experience that I have almost every day of my life One of the reasons why we read the great biographies of the saints who have gone before us is because we see in them particularly in them not so much what they accomplish as the motivating factor of their Christian life, but the love that they had for Jesus, the thing that marks the greatest saints who have ever walked the planet is that they have a deep and abiding love for Jesus. Um, Brody caught me this morning. We were talking about the love of Christ, that the love of Jesus ought to be so peculiar and different than all other loves that it is evident, that God has done a work of grace in your heart. And I think as we contemplate that and we, we consider our own experience and desires to love the Lord Jesus more, there is nowhere we can go, nowhere in all of the scriptures than outside the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday to see that beautiful interaction between the risen Jesus and Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons, and that first revelation of Christ, that first revealing of himself to one of his disciples, and the sweetness and the beauty and the love and the warmth and the affection that transpires there. Um, the Puritan Richard Sibbs has a really phenomenal treatise. You should read this if you get a chance. It's called The Heavenly Conference Between Christ and Mary, it's an exposition of this passage. These are heavenly things come down to earth. This is the most holy place. I think we're going to see that this morning. And as we look at this passage together and we consider these first 18 verses, I want us to first look at the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. And then I want us to secondly consider the resurrection of Christ in the experience of Mary. The historicity of the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in the experience of Mary. Well, uh, you have probably heard people try to argue evidences about the resurrection of Christ. Um, John is actually not doing that. He is going to set forth the historic uh, proof that the Lord Jesus is risen. He is going to weave it into his account But he is not trying to deduce arguments and plausible uh, rationales so that you would be like, you know what? Yes, it's probably more probable that Jesus was risen than he wasn't. John is simply stating the facts of what happens. And one of the really interesting things when you read the gospel records is that there is only one person among the apostolic band. There's only one person who was expecting the resurrection of Jesus, and that was Jesus himself. None of the other disciples were expecting it. Notice John will actually tell us, after he had gone as an eyewitness, notice verse 9, as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Uh, Jesus had told them he had to rise from the dead. He had recurrently told them, The Son of Man has to be handed over to lawless hands. He has to be beaten and mocked, spit upon. He has to be crucified the third day he would rise, but it fell on deaf ears for the apostolic band. And we know that also because John tells us that uh, even after he and Peter came to the tomb, they all went to their own homes. There was still a sense in which they didn't really know and understand these things. Now that's important because there was a narrative that the Pharisees and the chief priests had woven that said that the disciples had come and stolen the body of Jesus. Remember, Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 that when, when um, the Pharisees come to Pilate, they say, look, he said he was going to rise, and so I believe his disciples are going to steal his body, so we want you to do this, they say this, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And so Pilate orders that a stone and a seal and a soldier would go there at the tomb of Jesus. And he says to them, make it as secure as you possibly can, and they do that. And then you'll know in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28 that after Jesus is risen— The chief priests say to the guards who had been there guarding the tomb of Jesus and who were afraid now because the body of Jesus is gone, they say, tell everybody his disciples stole his body. But John tells us they didn't yet understand that he had to rise from the dead. That means they had no desire whatsoever to manufacture a narrative that he had risen because they did not understand that's what he had to do. There was one person And only one person among them that expected the resurrection, and that was Jesus. Now, John is also giving us more demonstrations, and you'll know there are two things. There are two things that John sets out in this passage that witness the resurrection of Jesus. The first is the empty tomb, and the second is the grave clues. Uh, The tomb was empty. There are angels that are going to be found inside, sitting one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus lay. By the way, if you know your Old Testament, there's only one other place where angels are said to be, one at the head, one at the feet, and that's over the Ark of the Covenant, facing one another with their wings touching where the glory of God shone forth. You see, this is the place where God's glory is manifest, in the empty tomb. This is the place where the glory of God is most fully manifest. And so the empty tomb with the angels is a witness to the glory of God, that God has done what he said he would do through Christ. And yet John also mentions the grave clothes, and he goes to great lengths to explain what Peter said. He had outrun Peter. He had gone. He had stooped and looked in, but he had not yet taken it all in. But Peter came, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with itself, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, why mention this? What is the point of that? Robbers don't fold clothes when they steal stuff. I'm sure it's happened, y'all. Weird stuff happens. But I've never heard of somebody breaking into someone's house and doing their dishes, ever. That's the point. Grave robbers. Would have taken whatever was in that tomb that they wanted. They would not have taken the time to unfold things and fold things neatly. And parents do not use this to get your children to fold their clothes. That is not the point. It is an evidence. It is a witness that Jesus is risen. The risen Jesus left behind in that tomb evidences that he had been risen from the dead. What's interesting is those grave clothes... I believe also serve as a spiritual reminder of what Jesus has done. Remember, he had been wrapped in those clothes. He had been wrapped from his feet to his shoulders. He had been wrapped from his neck to his head. And there, the last Adam in that garden rested dead in the tomb. And when he left those grave clothes behind, he is not just giving us a historical fact of his resurrection, though he is doing that. He is essentially giving you a symbol of what he did. Your sin, just like those grave clothes, was left behind in the tomb. That's, that's the realest and truest thing I can say to you this morning. If you were a believer, when Jesus stepped out of the tomb, he left all of your sin in that tomb a beautiful picture of this, isn't there, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian makes his way up the hill of difficulty and has gone through the wicked gate, and he has that burden on his back, and it's representative of the guilt of his sin, the weight that he feels, the, the huge weighing downness of his unrighteousness and iniquity, and we know that if we are Christians, we have felt that, and when he finally gets to the cross, Bunyan paints that picture of that burden falling off his back and rolling into the empty tomb. That's what Jesus is saying this morning. By leaving the grave closed, he has left the guilt of our sin. He has left death in the tomb. He has conquered death. That is the point. He has overthrown death. He has taken the sting out of death. When Jesus stepped out of the tomb, this was not just basic resuscitation. This was Jesus stepping into a new world of grace for his people. Um, I heard someone saying it like this once. When Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon and said this is one small step for man, one giant step for mankind, that that serves as a picture of what Jesus did. This was for all of his people. He rose for our justification, Paul says. In fact, the Apostle Paul will root the totality of our Christian life in the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. He will at one and the same time say that Jesus' resurrection secures your spiritual resurrection when he brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. But he will also say that the resurrection of Christ is what enables God to work powerfully in our souls Every day of our lives, as we continue to trust the Lord Jesus, he works resurrection power in his people. It's very interesting. I think John intends for our minds to go back to chapter 11. The last time we heard about a resurrection, you'll remember they're all at the tomb of Lazarus. And remember, Lazarus comes out of that tomb and he's still wrapped up. Remember, they have to bring him out and... Jesus tells them to to unloosen the grave clothes, But here, this is different. Here, there is no one to help the Lord Jesus. He has been helped out of the grave by himself. Scripture says that all three members of the Godhead were at work in the resurrection of Jesus— and that, that juxtapata- juxtaposition between Lazarus coming out bound enclosed, and Jesus coming out unbound is to show us this is entirely different than that. This is what everything in all of redemptive history and human history is moving toward. Um, you know... It would do us good to meditate often on the resurrection of Christ. I would ask you this morning, how often do you think about the empty tomb? It's kind of a sad consequence of our society that we sequester one Sunday a year to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This ought to be an everyday occurrence to us. Um, if, If we only think about the resurrection of Jesus from time to time, then we are missing the very central aspect of the life of faith for the believer. How do I know that Jesus hears me when I cry out to him? Because he's risen from the dead. How do I know that my prayers are effectual? Because he's risen from the dead. You know, um, we're going to talk in a minute about the spiritual impact of the resurrection on Mary. And that's really at the heart of what John is doing. He is giving us the history of the resurrection, but he's going to step on and say, and this is going to have the most enormous impact on your life spiritually. You know, John actually essentially tells us that, right? We're we're told that John believed when he saw, but notice the other disciple who had reached the tomb, verse 8, first went in, he saw, and believed, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Something happened in the soul of John that he had not yet experienced. That the reality of the resurrection of Jesus did something. It ignited something like a spark being ignited in his soul. And and that's what's supposed to happen. When you hear that Christ is risen, it is supposed to draw you in like a magnet and ignite something in your soul Where you say, as Thomas will say, once he finally comes to believe, I believe, my Lord and my God, that this is is the holy place for the souls of Christians. But I want you to notice that John is really honing in on Mary here in this first appearance, and... You'll notice that the passage began in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She had come with the other women. They had come to anoint Jesus further to preserve his body in that embalming process. She had come on the first day of the week, and she had come when it was dark, and yet the sun was already risen. Um, She had come because she loved the Lord Jesus. You know, Mary is going to be set out, as I said at the outset, as the premier example of what it means to love Christ. Um, Mary, you'll know, was an immoral woman. She had been sexually immoral. Jesus had healed her of seven demons. He had cast them out. He had radically transformed her life. A lot of theologians uh, assume, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly, that that Mary is the, the prostitute in uh, Luke's account in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus is at that dinner in Simon the Pharisee's house. And, and the sinful woman comes up to him and she begins weeping on him and washing his feet with her tears and her hair. And, and remember there in that setting at that dinner, Simon the Pharisee thinking he was better than this woman thought to himself, if this woman knew who this was, and if he was who he said he was, he wouldn't be allowing her to do this. And remember, Jesus says to him, Simon, I have a question for you. And he gives him that parable of the debtors who are forgiven. One forgiven little, one forgiven much. And the one forgiven little getting harsh with the one who had been forgiven much. And and then he says to him, the point of this, pointing to this woman, is The one who is forgiven much loves much. The more you know you're forgiven of, the more you'll love Jesus. The less you think you're forgiven of or feel your need for forgiveness, the less you will love him. Mary Magdalene is the only disciple outside the tomb of Jesus on that first morning because her soul loved the one who had healed her. You know, what a beautiful picture of God's grace that God can take the most unlovely, the most wicked, the most rebellious, the most sinful, and turn she or he into the most loving disciple. I'm not sure there's any more beautiful picture than this. If, if I want to love Christ more, then I need to know the massive amount he's forgiven me of. And the more I realize he's forgiven me of, the more my affection for him and desire to be with him is going to increase and abound. Now that, that's beautiful, because if we're honest, we all have the tendency to try to flog ourselves into doing better, trying harder, being a better Christian. And That's not the secret to growth in grace. The secret to growth in grace is that peculiar love of Jesus born in the soul of sinners because they know how much Christ has done for them. I'd ask you this morning, do you know how much Christ has done for you? When you think of the catalog of your life, and I sometimes marvel when I talk to unbelievers because y'all, I, have, I am so much more wicked than you by nature. And when I talk to unbelievers who say, yeah, I've done some things wrong. No, 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 you've done everything wrong. Your whole life, it's all wrong. Before Christ, it's all wrong. And even after Christ, many times it's wrong. We all stumble in many ways, James says. And yet Christ continues to forgive, continues to cleanse as we go to him, and Mary knows that love. And yet Mary is despondent. Notice verse 11. As John picks up Mary at the tomb, Mary remains there. The other disciples go home, but she stays. She wants to be as close to Jesus as she can be, even to the dead body of Jesus. Think of that. She wants to be as close even to the corpse Of the Savior because of what he did for her and notice she's despondent Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stooped to look into the tomb she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain they said to her woman why are you weeping she said they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him now here's what's marvelous if you and I saw an angel today we would fall down in terror and dread because that's what everybody in the Bible does when they saw an angel. Every single person in the Bible when they encountered an angelic being, they fell down in terror and fright. But Mary acts like they're not even there. What what is doing that? Well, it's a combination of her love for Christ and yet her grief and her despondency that she no longer has him in her life. You see there's a mixture here for Mary and she's an example to us. Mary is not what she yet should be. That's why Jesus is going to deal with her and lovingly reveal himself to her. She is actually still living in part in unbelief. She has not yet believed that he is risen from the dead. She thinks that somebody took the body She has assumed wrongly that someone came and took his body away and then even when Jesus reveals himself to her She assumes wrongly that this is the gardener Sort of ironic twist, isn't it? sin having begun in the garden Salvation being wrought in the garden and yet she doesn't know that he's the gardener of her soul you see, Richard Sibs says that she thought he was the physical gardener and missed the fact that he is the last Adam, the gardener of her soul. He tends all the souls of his people. Um, notice having passed the angels and in a sense having acted as if they didn't even exist. Notice verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She did not know it was Jesus. And then I want you to focus on verse 15 in the experience of Mary. I wish I had not asked you to look, because if I had asked you, what are the first words that Jesus says when he's risen from the dead? I'm not sure I would have remembered before this week. The first words out of the mouth of the Savior when he was risen from the dead are, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Now, that's going to become important because um, and you may not know this there are three. There are three couplets of resurrection appearances in John's gospel. There are three sets of two. The first one is here at the tomb, with John and Peter and Mary, that couplet of accounts. The next is in a house somewhere where Jesus reveals himself to the disciples and then to Thomas. And then the last one is in chapter 21 by the Lake of by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus appears and reveals himself to John and then to Peter and That's important because in all three accounts the focus moves in to Jesus doing something very special for each of his disciples who are in places spiritually where they ought not be to Mary here to Thomas in the upper room, to Peter when he restores him by the sea. Let me read this to you real quick. I had never thought of this. Have you noticed this? Eric Alexander says, In the first case, it is Mary. Jesus drives her tears of sorrow away. In the second case, it is Thomas. Jesus dispels his doubts and brings him to faith. In the third case, it is Peter's brokenheartedness because of his failure. Jesus restores him to himself and to service and to fullness. Alexander says very clearly, John is telling us in this account of the resurrection of Jesus that he is now the conquering victor over death. He is still the one who by his mighty hand touches the lives of the broken. Don't miss that. He is the one who touches the lives The lives of the broken and the needy and the doubting and the failure. I want to read that again. The risen Jesus touches the lives of the broken and the needy and the doubting and the fail failures. And where there are tears, he drives them away. Where there are doubts, he dispels them. And where there is failure, he restores and renews. That's awesome. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why does Jesus keep appearing it's not just so people can say yeah 500 people saw him we were witnesses and it really happened it's because he is teaching them that they need him in his resurrection power to be with them to draw near to them and to do in their souls what they cannot do for themselves now i know this much y'all i'm 45 years old this year and i know this much that if you take away the money and the self-medication Every single person in this room is hurting and broken, perhaps downcast, weighed down with the guilt of their sin, and perhaps weighed down with their failures. And so I know that there is a word here for you, and a word here for me, that the same Christ who draws near to Mary is the same risen Christ who says, I am coming to draw near to you. I am coming to restore you. I am coming to wipe your tears away. You know, it's remarkable. Every single funeral, every single funeral has been marked by tears. And yet, after the resurrection of Jesus, every single funeral can have those tears wiped away for those that are in Christ. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing for Mary. Um... You know this this tomb would have been charged with mystery and wonder you had angels there uh, Mary again is just longing to just take the body of Jesus She essentially says to him if, if I can just have his body. I'll take it with me just to have his lifeless body That's how much I love him. My soul longs for him And yet she is going to get something so much greater. She's going to get the first resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus It's not going to be a man, ladies. It's going to be a woman. Richard Sibbs actually says the Puritan, I've got to preface it with the word Puritan, Puritan Richard Sibbs says Christ is going to make her an apostle to apostles. He's going to say, go tell the brethren. He's going to put her to use in his kingdom. He is going to make her a witness to his resurrection. He is not just going to wipe away her tears. He is going to, to make her useful in his kingdom. You see, Jesus' restoration far exceeds any idea of our restoration. Um, We would would be content with this much. And the risen Christ says, no, I'm going to show you how much I'm going to do for you. And notice, as, as he comes to reveal himself, notice what he does in that revelation to Mary. Notice verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, one word, one word between them, Mary, and she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. If you are a true believer, that was odd, never had that happen before. Um, (laughs) Is more falling? Um, (laughs) If you are a true believer, that got everybody's attention. Now everybody's like, we're tired of hearing your scratchy voice, but now we're listening. (laughs) If you are a true believer it is because you have heard one word from Jesus when he has called you by name in the very depths of your soul And he has said to you so and so follow me and remember back in chapter 10 Jesus said in this very gospel. I am the good shepherd The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I call them by name and they follow me What is Jesus doing? He is saying to Mary I am the shepherd of your soul and whenever a man or a woman, a boy or a girl hears the voice of Jesus saying to them, so and so, I am the shepherd of your soul, they rise and they follow him. Now, if somebody asked me how I became a Christian, I could give you a two-hour history of my life, the way God has worked, the providences, the downs, the ups, the ins and the outs, who God used... Who shared the gospel with me? What happened in my life that would lead me to Christ? But there's really one answer. One day, in 2001, the Lord Jesus called me by name, and I rose, and I followed him. And he calls Mary by name. He says, Mary, she turns, and she says, Rabboni. And and she cleaves to him, verse 17, she clings to him. She realizes, my soul has found the one I love. You know, sometimes well-meaning Christians that happen to be in Reformed churches will say things like, well, we don't cleave to Christ, he cleaves to us. And that's very true. He will hold us fast. We sing that. We love that. But Mary sets an example that we ought to be clinging to him. We ought to be cleaving to him. We ought to be holding on to the Lord Jesus out of love for him because of what he did for us, because he atoned for our sins, because of the forgiveness and the restoration that he's given us. You know, this word that Jesus tells her, it's a word of love, it's a word of compassion, it's a word of her belonging to him. Notice, notice Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, and he means in his physical form. He says, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father, and your father to my God and your God. What is Jesus telling Mary? He's saying, he's preaching the doctrine of adoption, spiritual adoption. He's saying to her, Mary, there is something far greater than you having me here in the flesh. There is something I have accomplished for you that is far more impacting and meaningful. That I'm going to my father as the eternal son, and he is now your father. That that Jesus is saying to her, I am your elder brother. I am, yes, God in the flesh, but I am the adopted son, as it were, covenantally. And everyone united to me is my brethren. And the privileges that we now have, because Jesus is risen, is the privilege of knowing that we have received the adoption as sons and daughters. You know, it's very interesting. This book opens where it ends. It ends... Where it opens with these words John says in chapter 1 as many as received him To them he gave the right to be children of God even to those who believe in his name And when he steps out of the tomb he says mary i'm going to my father and your father I'm going to my god and your god Now he is also Telling her he is going to do more for her He is saying i am going to ascend And there is more that i'm going to do i am going to the very right hand of my father and i am going to ever live to intercede for you i am always going to represent you you know the assurance of pardon this morning and we should pay very close attention to those was out of first john chapter two and it's one of my favorites if anyone sins we have an advocate a defense counselor with the father jesus christ the righteous we we have a sinless representative before God. If you're a believer, Christ has ascended to heaven for you to represent you. He is there right now, sitting on the throne of God, ruling from the center of reality, upholding the world by the word of his power, and he's doing it all for his people. He's doing it all for you if you belong to him. Um, What comfort What comfort Mary must have felt to go from absolute um, disconsolation to being assured that she is going to have the Redeemer always representing her before the throne of God. I imagine at times Mary probably struggled with her past sins. I've done that. Maybe you've done that. The, The terrible things that you've done. Jesus is assuring her, your sins are forgiven. I've finished the work of redemption. I'm always going to represent you. I'm always going to be there to comfort you. I'm always going to be at the right hand of the Father to receive you and welcome you, to hear your prayers, and to love you. Um, I've already noted that Mary is sent as an ambassador of sorts. In verse 18, we're told Mary Magdalene went... And announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What is the proper response to all of this? Well, one proper response is that we ought to want to tell others about the risen Christ. We ought to want to tell others that he is risen, that he has ascended, and that he welcomes sinners, and that he is risen in order to help those who are in very trying and difficult circumstances in life. You know, we've had a suicide epidemic in our day. And I told our boys not long ago, I said, guys, no matter what mistakes you make, no matter how hard life gets, there's always hope in Christ. There's always hope in the gospel. Jesus will not turn away one sinner who comes to him, looking for him, even... As Mary's coming Not even with a full understanding of who he is and all he came to do and then as We realize the grace of the Lord Jesus and our souls are restored by his love for us and As we realize all that he's done for us and as we begin to understand the privileges that we are sons and daughters And we start to live like sons and daughters and we realize that he has work for us to do That we are motivated To give our lives in service to the Lord Jesus. Um, I want to say this this morning. Maybe, maybe you're here and you just feel really dry spiritually. This is where you come. You come to the empty tomb. Maybe you're here and you're discouraged with life. This is where you come. You come to the empty tomb. Maybe you've just really messed up your life with sin and rebellion. This is where you come. You come to the empty tomb. That's what John wants you to see. He wants you to see the Christ who welcomed Mary in all of her downcastness, and he wiped away her tears, and he built her up in the knowledge of him, and he sent her out to be useful in his kingdom. And that can be true of every single one of us, but you have to go to him. You have to go to him. It is possible that you could sit here and hear me at least until the flag dropped here or after and you could go home and do nothing and not go to him and I beg you this morning that you would believe that the Lord Jesus is risen and that you would go to him from your soul on your knees seeking his face and crying out to him more love to thee O Christ more love to thee this is the prayer I make on bended knee When was the last time you prayed, Lord, increase my love for you? I know that every time we pray that, he does it, even sometimes in imperceptible ways. I hope that you'll go to the Lord Jesus knowing these things are true for you wherever you are in life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you this morning that you have given us such a clear sight of your son here at the empty tomb. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are even now at the right hand of your father, that you have been risen from the dead, that you revealed yourself to Mary, and we thank you and praise you that you are the same Christ to us today. We do pray that you would give us grace to go to you, to cry out, that you would increase our love for you and our faith in you. We pray that we would know new experiences of grace in our soul. We pray that we would know greater manifestations of your love toward us, your shepherd and care for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would draw us to yourself with cords of love, that you would wipe away tears, that you would restore those who are fallen, and that you would increase the faith of those who are doubting. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, would you do this and so much more in our souls. We pray these things in your name. Amen.